This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello, and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is senior correspondent at National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology, and director of the Center for the Study of Spirituality at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. He is also affiliated professor of spirituality at the Oblate School of Theology in San Antonio, Texas. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm great. I feel like I'm having holiday overload here in our family. I think this week, as many people know, Valentine's Day and Ash Wednesday are falling on the same day this Wednesday. And so a lot of people are having to decide whether they're going to fast on that day or go out for a fancy dinner. And of course, it was Super Bowl Sunday this past Sunday. But our family also celebrates the Lunar New Year, which started on Saturday. And so it's the year of the dragon. Happy New Year to those who celebrate. So my house is fully decorated for at least two holidays. And we celebrate the New Year for 10 days. So we'll be going to the Chicago parades with the Vietnamese community and the Chinese community next weekend. But I just feel like there's so much to celebrate and mark this time of year. What about you, Dan? What are you celebrating? Oh, my goodness. What is there to celebrate? Well, I did not partake of the Mega Bowl, Super Bowl, Giant Bowl, and that is not a, any kind of virtue signaling or any kind of ideological commitment. I actually just was really exhausted come Sunday. We had a lot of events and things happening around the center and at St. Mary's College last week, including a wonderful lecture by Emily Reamer Berry of the University of San Diego, who's got a great new book coming out this summer. She's engaging as a Catholic moral theologian in questions of reproductive justice. And so most people, when they hear that, or at least many people assume abortion, and while she addresses abortion, she's much more interested in thinking about ways to be in solidarity with, with pregnant women in lots of different capacities. And so 
yeah, she gave a great lecture, great turnout. And then right after that, I had a wedding this past weekend. And so a rehearsal for that on Friday and then the wedding and the reception itself on Saturday. On Sunday, I had liturgies in the morning. And then in between all of those sacramental extravaganzas, I was taking care of a lot of other work that I was catching up on. So by the time Sunday afternoon rolled around, though, I had a very kind invitation from a colleague in town who was hosting a Super Bowl party. I had to decline. So I'm catching up on the Super Bowl ads on YouTube like most people and have been reading about that sort of stuff. I've heard about the smooch with Travis Kelsey, Taylor Swift to celebrate the win and the Usher concert at halftime. And so I feel like I, even though I didn't watch it, I have a decent sense of what's going on. And I can't believe it's Ash Wednesday yesterday by the time this episode drops. So Lent is upon us. It snuck up so early this year. And I'm still actually, to be honest with you, in the next 24 hours trying to decide how I'm going to mark the season of Lent. I know we often talk about that on this podcast around this time of year. I have some ideas, but they're not fully formed yet. So yeah, I don't know if either of you have been thinking about that, Heidi or David. Well, I just have to piggyback a bit on the Super Bowl thing too. I forgot to say that NCR is located in Kansas City. Oh. So so when my beloved Packers were not in the game, I knew I would be cheering for them and not for the Taylor Swift reason. But so it was kind of an exciting game. It's not always a good actual football game, but I enjoyed watching the overtime. And our neighborhood has a big party with a chili cook-off that's super oh, cool. fun. So yeah, we're celebrating. And even our publisher gave us an all like late start on Monday to to kind of, you know, for our Super Bowl hangover so we could come in a little <laughs> bit late. So I appreciate that. So woo-woo, Chiefs. I'm a jump on the bandwagon fan as somebody whose company is based in Kansas City. Who were you cheering for, David? Well, I wish that I could say that I cared about football, but I do not. <laughs> so, I'm Solidarity, sorry. brother. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. But I, a lot of good stuff has been happening around the Dalt home. So I have been continuing to work on finishing this book I've been working on perennially, The Accessorized Bible. I had a really good week of revisions, and chunks of it are now going to the person who is going to be checking all the footnotes and everything for me. And I'm also starting up some other projects behind it. So I think I've mentioned that I'm working with a student on developing a book on queer theology. I'm very excited about that. Riffing on this line from Pope Francis in 2015, where he said, our job is to support the poor in becoming dignified agents of their own destiny. So the tentative title of this queer theology is called Dignified Agents. And it's trying to think about the depth of that phrase, sort of read through Laudato Si, and to really bring Catholic thinking and I, what I would hope would be mainline Catholic thinking into conversation with this kind of marginalized discourse. And I'm also working with another colleague on a co-authored book on Ludwig Feuerbach, often overlooked philosopher, but one of my favorite luminaries from the 19th century and a person that I go back to repeatedly in my own theological reflections. And I'm getting ready. I'm taking a feather from the Dan Haran cap here. I'm getting ready to travel not to one, but to two conferences this week. So I will be in California in Los Altos for the Association of Graduate Programs in Ministry Conference. And then that's for three days. And then on the last day, I will tack on a day at the 
Association of Jesuit Colleges and Universities conference, where I will be taking over the presidency of one of their subsections on theological and ministerial education for the next year. So there's a lot happening in the next seven days, and I don't like traveling, but I am excited to go and see some colleagues, and I'm excited to eat some good California mission-style burritos, and (laughs) I'm looking forward to being back home with my family on Monday. So that's what's happening with me. Hey, I have to say, David, though, you're taking over this leadership role on one of those committees. You might be taking that cap, not just a feather, entirely from me. I haven't actually been on a plane in a whole month. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I am traveling this week for a board of trustees meeting somewhere in New York. But yeah, I've been intentional this year about trying to travel less because like you, and I think in the last episode, I shared a little update as well about some of the manuscripts I'm working on. But yeah. I have projects that require a little bit more time. And so I've pulled back from a lot of public speaking, but every now and then I have these commitments. So you're traveling more than I am these days, David. And it's weird that you're going to California because I think the LA Religious Ed Congress is coming up. And in various years, either the two of you have been there or I've been there. And this year, the three of us are all missing it. So shout out to all our friends at LA Religious Ed Congress. And sorry, we're missing you this year. Yeah, LA Rec is happening at exactly the same time as these two conferences. So it was always going to be a conflict for me. And at one point, I was going to try and do all three of them. It's one one day, another the other day, and just it was too much. But my hope is that we all can gather again at LA Rec and see our friends out in California, uh, hopefully next year or maybe the year after. So yeah, uh, hope springs eternal for that. Speaking of hope and looking ahead to things, let's talk about what's happening on the show today. So in our first segment, we're going to be talking about those Super Bowl ads that maybe caught your attention if you were refilling your potato chips during a break in the game. We're also going to be talking about the recent meeting of cardinals where an Episcopal bishop who was a woman was invited to attend, and larger conversations about priestly celibacy in the Roman Rite of the Catholic Church. And in our third segment, Heidi is going to be interviewing Joyce Rupp, and they're going to be talking about Lent and Lenten practices. So all of that is coming up. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlump and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. If you were to scroll through the USA Today rankings of the 59 various Super Bowl ads that aired during the game last Sunday, you would make it a long way down the list before you reach the ones aired by the, quote, He Gets Us campaign. The ads may not have been as star-studded or full of special effects as some of the flashier ones that were shown during the game, but they have captured public attention nevertheless. Both ads are a series of still images over a musical background. The longer ad, called Foot Washing, shows a series of scenes where two people we might expect to be on the opposite sides of the culture wars are actually washing one another's feet. 
The ad ends by saying, Jesus didn't teach hate, he washed feet. The shorter ad called, Who is my neighbor?, shows a series of images of faces, each one visually coded to be in some sort of extreme situation of violence or poverty or drug use. The ad ends by saying, who is my neighbor? The one you don't want to notice, value, and welcome. And as much as the imagery has sparked public discussion, many have also raised the question about the disconnect between the wholesomeness of the messages and the political agendas of the various individuals and foundations that funded the ads. As Fortune Magazine has reported, quote, Last year's ads were overseen by the Servant Foundation, also a donor to Alliance Defending Freedom, a prominent conservative legal organization that helped overturn Roe v. Wade, the ruling establishing a nationwide right to abortion, and has represented clients challenging same-sex marriage and transgender rights, unquote. Digging into the funding sources has proven complicated because the foundations, like Servant, that have directly supported the He Gets Us campaign keep their donor lists anonymous. However, it has been reported that high-profile evangelical funders, the Green family, who are the owners of Hobby Lobby, have been major contributors. David, I realize you don't have a television, but I know you have taken a look at these ads and have followed the discussion. So what are your first thoughts here? Well, the first thought that I have is... and. Listeners may or may not know this about me, but before I returned to academia, I spent a number of years as the executive director of a faith-focused nonprofit here in the Chicago area. And funding is complex. Oftentimes, in order to keep my organization going, it meant that I was sitting in rooms with people with whom I might have very deep political differences. And to some extent, some of those relationships, we were able to discuss those political differences productively. Others, I was advised by my board to just keep my mouth shut. So there, there are times where in order to get something that you think is good into the world, you make alliances with those with whom you may not have all the same parallel goals and ambitions. That being said, as we are trying to unearth who the funders for this are, it really has raised some red flags for a lot of people who have said the message that we're seeing, which is that there's an acceptance of those who society has deemed to be unacceptable whether we're talking about legislation against trans people in Missouri or whether we're talking about anti-immigrant legislation or actions happening at the Texas border, the funders behind this, they turn around and they give money to this ad campaign. And then two weeks later, they are also funding things like CPAC. And so I think that there's a real conversation to be had here. And I don't think that the answer is just to draw stark binaries and say, because the funders are bad, the ad campaign has to be bad. A lot of people that I respect have said, these messages are good, even if the funding is questionable. But others have said, no, listen, you have to interrogate to some extent the relationship between the messaging of Jesus and the, what we might call the greenwashing or the veneer over some of these organizations. Maybe they're trying to rehabilitate their public image in some ways by contributing to an ad campaign like this. So those are some initial thoughts. I'd be very interested in what you two think. Well, yeah, I think especially when you're talking about the He Guts Us ads, it's interesting that it seems to have confused the, like you said, the binary culture war folks. So on the one hand, more conservative evangelicals I've seen on social media didn't like the ads because of the open welcoming message. And then you had more progressive people raising concerns about the funding. Now, it is my understanding that I don't know how involved that group is still with the ads, but they've turned 
that adds over to like new management. So there's this nonprofit group now that's in charge of them. But certainly they were originally funded last year and may still have a connection with that group of conservative funders. I wrote a similar article about ads that were about the Hallow app. So this is a more Catholic prayer app you can get on your phone. And they also had a Super Bowl ad this year, but it was only in 15 of the major markets. So there are parts of It wasn't a national ad, and so probably wouldn't be on that USA Today list. And they likewise have some interesting connections with folks that would normally be considered in the pretty conservative wing of the church. But the ad itself, I thought, was nicely done. It was just calling for prayer and had the famous Mark Wahlberg and the guy that plays Jesus on The Chosen were in the ad. So I don't know. Yeah, I think there a lot of times anything that's institutionally religious may have these right-wing connections now, and it's part of that broader issue of like, progressive religion, we're out there, anyone? <laughs> I think another interesting topic is whether these ads really work in making people more open to religion or not. But I don't know, Dan's shaking his head. I don't <laughs> think you, so. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's purely anecdotal, so I, I don't have data to point to this. And even if I did, it wouldn't be based on the Sunday's showing of some of these ads. But, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's my cynicism, but I actually think that as we look at the market share increasingly shifting from the baby boom generation through Gen X to millennials and Gen Z dominating the kind of the eye sockets that are watching these things, millennials and Gen Z, I mean, what we do have data to say that they are not swayed by this kind of superficiality, which is how I read it. I think I think that generously reading this, I think that there are these folks in the organization that created these ads are well-intentioned. I don't think there's like a direct hidden kind of agenda or a greenwashing, whitewashing, Christian washing, like David, like you were saying, that might be that might be part of it. That might be a, an effect of that. But I'm going to play devil's advocate and read their actions as sincere But I have two thoughts about this that haven't really come up in our conversation yet. One is, well, what is the image of Jesus that is being presented? And I don't mean that just literally, what does Jesus look like? But what what about the gospel is being conveyed? Okay, so, you know, the foot washing and who is my neighbor, those are really interesting and very important motifs in the evangelical, in the broad sense, meaning the biblical gospel tradition. But Jesus famously was executed in part because he unsettled people who were in positions of power, who were in positions of wealth, who were, as the whole prophetic tradition of the Hebrew Bible makes clear, God is not on the side of the billionaires and the millionaires who are discriminatory and who are funding these other sorts of enterprises. So it just seems to me weird, or maybe a self-selecting, kind of in a Jeffersonian way, you know, kind of cutting out the parts of the Bible that appeal only to these this very narrowly defined audience with all this money. So that's one thing. The second thing is actually more interesting to me, which is the intellectual and ethical dissonance between the actions and the livelihood and the political and social agendas of these folks and the whole of Christianity. (laughs) And so trying to square these things, I think, can be viewed honestly and not just cynically as self-serving. But I also, how, do, how does somebody square this? I'm thinking of a small book that Slavoj Žižek, the Slovenian philosopher, wrote maybe more than a decade ago now on violence. And it was six, I think he calls it like six sideways views or something like this. And in one of the early chapters, he talks about the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and a similar sort of thing in non-explicitly Christian religious framework. But he says, 
on the one hand, there's this universal lauding of the fight against malaria and all the good things that these billions of dollars through nonprofits have accomplished. On the other hand, how do we square that with monopoly and capital being located in such tremendous ways by one or two individuals? Like, there is an inherent, he would argue, violence, right? There's a violence at the core of this. And I feel like there's a similar sort of thing playing out here. David, you're familiar with Zizek and some of this theory. Does that make any sense to you? It really does. And I want to take that and deepen it even more because I've been thinking as I've been listening to you and Heidi giving your thoughts here about an organization that I like very much called Church Clarity. And what they do is they really try and survey churches that have welcoming messages to see whether or not they actually go, let's call it the extra mile. They don't simply welcome those that they consider to be outsiders, but they actually take efforts to include those outsiders in leadership. So if you are LGBTQIA and you come to this church, could you become a deacon? Could you become part of the leadership of the church? Could you become ultimately a minister if that's your calling, those sorts of things? Or are they wanting to bring you in with a welcoming message to convert you out of who you are to something that they think you should be. And so that really speaks to a different kind of violence here, where it's the violence of welcoming someone and saying, no, Jesus accepts you, but not in your wholeness and your authenticity. Jesus only accepts you for what you will become, not for who you are right now. And to me, that's that's not a, a physical violence, but it really is a message of violence ultimately. And so one of the things that I really appreciate about trying to figure out the funding and ask real good questions about the connection between the funding and the agendas of something like the He Gets Us campaign is exactly that. Is this just a nice veneer that we're putting on a different kind of bigotry? Are we using Jesus as our beard to welcome people in, and then at some point we're going to whip off the disguise and say, now that you're here and you're connected to our community and it's hard to leave, we're going to start exerting a lot of pressure on you to change, or at least not to be public about who you fully are. Well, I, Jesus has the beard. I love that. <laughs> I don't disagree with you guys. I mean, obviously, I've done a lot of reporting about right-wing money in Catholic organizations and connections sometimes to evangelical Protestant organizations. But just taking a step back, who's going to bring the message of Jesus as whose message is about inclusion? A Super Bowl commercial is not cheap. So $7 million, I think it was for a 30-second spot. The Hallow people told me they didn't pay that much because it wasn't all markets, but millions of dollars. And it would be nice if the commercial that showed Jesus as welcoming of all people was then inviting people to a church that was truly welcoming of all people, like you said. It was actually practicing what it preached. But at least the message wasn't Jesus hates you because you're gay on the commercial, which you could have had, but maybe they're smarter than that. But I wish that progressive religion, progressive Christianity, that I think has a broader, more expansive view of what Jesus's message was, was getting its message out there. Because generations that you're talking about demographically, Dan, that, that were watching Usher and all the other people at the halftime show, some of whom I didn't know who they were, they don't have that good view of they think Christianity is just equals right wing. Yeah, but that's exactly what's being played out here, isn't it? It's right wing billionaires 
who are trying to, by their own press release, quote, rehab the image of Jesus for these generations, which is exactly the point. The point is they want to control the narrative. And I think I'm going to put on my, I'm an older millennial, either a young Gen Xer or older millennial, depending on where you draw that line in the early 80s, late 70s. But I teach a lot of Gen Z students. I get some sense of this. And I'm just going to put that hat on and say, like, when they hear this, they're like, well, you drop millions of dollars for a 30-second ad of a very kind of saccharine, feel-good, maybe touchy message because you want people to be more accommodating to your brand of Christianity. Perhaps you could have used that, those millions of dollars to actually serve those people that you depicted as poor or at the margins. Maybe you could have used that money in a more constructive way to do theological education and pastoral outreach to help communities welcome folks who are different from them or something along those lines. I don't know. If, I think those arguments can fall apart pretty quickly. But I think I don't I can't imagine anybody quite honestly, like I would be interested to see anybody present five people who are so swayed by the millions of dollars in the 60 seconds combined of these ads that they've converted to Christianity, which is, I think, the fever dream of some of these billionaires. The other thing is this notion of rehabbing Jesus. I, I actually disagree, Heidi. I don't think a progressive image of the gospel or of Jesus or of Christianity was is presented in this case. I, I tend to side a little bit more on David's notion of a laundering of Christianity or laundering of people's certain interpretation or limited kind of view of Christianity. And even so, I think the younger generations will look at this with their appropriate sort of skepticism and say, there's a lot of talk here, but where are the actions? Which brings us back to the earlier part of the conversation. And I'm reminded of Jesus in the Gospels who says, a lot of you are going to say, Lord, Lord, you know, you're going to talk the talk, but very few of you are going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's in part because it's one thing to talk. It's another thing to put your, your beliefs and your words into action. And I think when we look at the actions of people like the Hobby Lobby family and other wealthy individuals and families who are supporting this kind of stuff, the actions are mixed at best. And I would argue probably anti Christian at worst. Well, and I, yeah, we very rarely have even slight disagreements here. <laughs> so this is kind of fun. Let me just say, it's not clear to me that Hobby Lobby was involved in this year's ad. So I, what I've been able to read is that while they were involved in launching the organization that was in charge of the ads last year, that this year it's under new management. It doesn't explicitly say, and now all those right-wing funders are gone but I haven't been able to find anything in the news coverage that says they're involved this year. And so this year's commercial on its face does not look like it would have been produced by a right-wing organization because its message is one of inclusion. So in that sense, and I, I totally love about the generation that says, let's call you on your hypocrisy. I think that's important. But also I do think, and this is just the media person in me, Yes, spend money on actually serving people. And yes, I get that it's extreme, the Super Bowl millions that are spent. But advertising and messaging is important. That's what evangelization is about. And I think that, and advertising doesn't work that way, that you run an ad and then people are like, wow, I'm going to become a Christian. It's all part of just creating the idea that Christianity is not just for right-wing bigots. And I guess as a parent, that is the perspective that I see younger people having. And I want to say, first of all, that's not true at all. 
And second of all, it's certainly not true about me, and I'm a Christian. And while I appreciate the pushback to call Christianity, and especially a lot of Christianity in the U.S., on the carpet about its hypocrisy, I think another message is valuable too. So I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to split the difference between both of you. I think I agree with both Dan and Heidi. And let me take just a moment to try and explain what I mean. So in the early 2000s, there was a magazine called Adbusters, which was published out of a media foundation up in Canada. And its whole thing was to take brands and to circum- circumvent them or to undermine them. So to use Marlboro imaging for anti-smoking ads and to use McDonald's imaging for healthy food choices. and But they were very sad. And they were, they, but they intentionally turned the ads that we were being fed against themselves. Just in the last 24 hours, as I have been on social media, I have seen the images that have been put out by the the He Gets Us Foundation, particularly the foot washing images, repurposed for right wing messaging. So there are the images of the foot washing, but superimposed with things like go and sin no more, that sort of stuff. So the thing that that we need to be aware of is that this is getting people talking, but we are in a very, very savvy media environment where almost immediately any message can be turned against itself, whether a right-wing corporate message turned to undermine itself or a really inclusive message turned towards bigotry and hate. So we all have to be very savvy about how we are coming into this and how we are digesting this kind of media media landscape. That being said, I really do take Heidi's point that the act of putting a message like this in front of that many eyeballs is going to give some people a kind of momentary dislodging of their expectations. The real question is what happens next? As a media person myself, we talk a lot about calls to action. And one of the things that I'm really disappointed about with the He Gets Us Foundation's website is if you go to the website and if you start to engage with these media materials there, they don't direct you towards anything that would actually get you involved in what we might call a gospel welcome. They direct you towards a couple of scriptures. They give you a lot to read, and then they say, and here's the Bible. And I just want to say to our listeners, the Bible is not going to solve anything in 2024. It's not. And my reference for that is the catechism itself, because the catechism says Christianity is not a religion of the book, it's a religion of the living Word of God, which means that if we actually are putting Bible messages in front of people, we need to be engaging in real empathetic conversations with them about their lived experience, about how these Bible messages have been used against them with humility and modesty in order to actually repair the damage that we have done in our doing. Yeah, I know we're going long in this segment because there's a lot here to unpack, which is great. I'm also just thinking too about what is the problem with Christianity that these funders and this organization felt needed to quote unquote be rehabbed? And I think this builds on what you were saying, David, about people not actually putting their faith into action, right? Not living out the Beatitudes. It also reminds me of other, Heidi, to your point earlier about the value of kind of messaging and getting the word out there in evangelization, I don't know many people, to be honest again, including myself, who are moved by words alone or even slick advertising campaigns. And I think we see this in the Catholic community right now, too, with the pushback, the blowback that the bishops are facing when 
with all the things happening in the world, including the earth itself burning, they're like, you know what we need? We need to rehab the Eucharist. Let's have a let's dump millions of dollars into a Eucharist festival in Indianapolis. That's going to solve our problems. And that is not a critique of the Eucharist or the Blessed Sacrament by any means. But I actually think, you know, this kind of thinking, as we see in the U.S. Catholic Church, verges, quite frankly, on on the edge of idolatry. If we're going to use the Eucharist to rehab and call people back and use it as a tool or a means to an end instead of recognizing the sacramental presence of Christ as an end in itself. So I know that's a little bit different than the Super Bowl ad, but I don't know. I'm I'm still, I'm not buying it. Yeah, I hear you. And, but it is true. Advertising does work and it's why corporations continue to pay millions of dollars for it. Now, and it backfires, it, though, too. It can. And does it work in a religious context is, to me, the interesting bigger question. And I suspect that, like, Super Bowl ad might not be the right place to do it. But, like, for a living, I try to educate people about Christianity using media. So if we're going to argue that's a, not a worthwhile pursuit, I'm going to push back against that. Oh, I don't I, think anyone's... I certainly, I certainly haven't argued that. We yeah. say on a podcast. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was just thinking. I totally disagree. I distance myself from that claim. I've never made that claim. Yeah. But Super Bowl ad is a different thing. And especially when it comes from groups that have a lot of very conservative right-wing connections. Believe me, I'm not disagreeing with that. I just continue to have this hope that... Somebody who's really living the gospel, I don't know, Catholic Relief Service, the Francis Effect podcast, somebody great, NCR, had the money to get our message out there in front of people and say, hey, you think you know what Christianity is? No, it's some of these cool things too. And there are some people I think who are getting that message out with integrity. And you're right, it's not through Super Bowl ads, it's through walking the walk, walking the talk. <laughs> I would simply add that when people start asking the kind of questions that we've been asking, and we're not the only people asking these questions about sources of funding and things like that. The answer is not the answer that the Servant Foundation gave, which is one of the hallmarks of donor-directed funds is that they don't have to, they, they can be private and they don't have to tell. Again, in 2024, any kind of large religious organization or quasi-religious adjacent organization that is shepherding this amount of money that says, but we're going to keep all this in the dark, like we're post-spotlight now. We don't get served well as Christians in the shadows. We get served when, what, when everything that we do can be above board and can be open to the light. And so that's, I think, a piece that's important to me here. I have really enjoyed this discussion, and I could keep doing this for a, the next couple of hours, but we do need to move on to our next topic. So we're going to leave this here for now. Listeners, we are very interested in your thoughts on this as well, so please do let us know on social media or email us, kind of let us know what you're thinking about this. But for the moment, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Two unrelated stories having to do with who can and cannot be ordained in the Roman Catholic Church have captured the attention of Vatican watchers. 
First, on February 5th, Pope Francis and his Council of Cardinals invited three women to participate in discussions on the theme of, quote, the role of women in the church, unquote, according to the Vatican Press Office. The three women were a woman religious who is also a theologian, a consecrated virgin who is also a liturgist, and an Anglican bishop who serves as the Deputy Secretary General of the Anglican Communion. It was the participation of Bishop Joe Bailey Wells that turned some heads. Although the Vatican has not commented on what was discussed or what material was shared, it is notable that the Pope and his top advisors welcomed a woman bishop of another Christian denomination to speak about the role of women in the Church. The second story, which unfolded a week earlier, Archbishop Charles Shikluna, the Archbishop of Malta and an adjunct secretary of the Dicastery for the Doctrine of Faith, sat down for an interview with National Catholic Reporter about comments he made at the beginning of the month suggesting that the Church reconsider the requirement of mandatory celibacy for priests. He pointed to two phenomena that inform his thinking on the matter. First, there are some seminarians who leave formation and some priests who end up leaving active ministry to become married. Shikluna said, quote, Why should we lose a young man who would have made a fine priest just because he wanted to get married? Unquote. He also noted that there are cases all around the world where some priests enter into hidden relationships and feel compelled to live a, quote, double life. According to Catholic News Service, the Archbishop described these circumstances as, quote, a symptom of priests having to cope with their celibacy requirement, unquote. The second phenomenon is the current practice, dating back to at least 1951, where the Church welcomes married Lutheran and Anglican ministers into Roman Catholic ministry, allowing them to be ordained priests as married men. Additionally, there are 23 Eastern Catholic churches in full communion with Rome that as a rule permit married priests, and the Western or Roman Catholic tradition of mandatory celibacy only dates back to the 12th century. Dan, not only are you a theologian, you're also a Catholic priest. What do you think about these two recent stories? Oh, so many things, David, so many things. Both stories have garnered a lot of attention for readers of our one of our partner organizations, National Catholic Reporter, for which I'm a columnist, and, and Heidi, who's, who's senior correspondent, may have noticed that these two stories were, have actually been at the top of the most read list for some time since their publication. So maybe first, I'll just highlight a couple thoughts that I have initially, and because I'm eager to hear what you two think, about inviting Bishop Wells to the Council of Cardinals meeting. And that is not just her presence, which I think is fine. I think there's an ecumenical opportunity there. I think having conversations across other, the kind of boundaries of leadership and other traditions is really key. The thing that actually struck me the most about the three people who were invited, the three women who were invited to speak to Pope Francis and his collaborators, his advisors, is that there were no laywomen there. There was an Anglican bishop, there was a woman religious, and then there was a consecrated virgin. And so he, they were ostensibly there to talk about the role of women in the church, the incredible vast majority of which are, don't fall into any three of those categories. In the Catholic tradition, there were no women bishops that are recognized, very few consecrated virgins. And we know that the number of women religious, as, as well as male religious, are is on the decline. So I just think it was interesting that there was no married women there. There were no mothers, perhaps. I don't know about Bishop Wells. She may be a mother and be married. Certainly within the Roman tradition, at least, there was no representation of those perspectives, which I think 
reflect the vast majority of Catholics worldwide. I think that Archbishop Shakluna's comments are spot on. And quite frankly, this is something that, again, I would say the vast majority of Catholic religious clergy and theologians have been saying for a long time. The history is quite clear. This is not to nerd out too much here, but the requirement for mandatory celibacy for ministerial priests in the Roman church is what's called a church discipline. It is not doctrinal. It is a rule not unlike fasting on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday or abstaining from consuming meat on Fridays during Lent. Those are church disciplines. They're enforced, but there are exceptions to the rule, which is why we see in 1951 the loosening of the admission of married clergy of other Christian denominations being welcomed into the Roman church and then in many cases being quote unquote reordained, right? Being Because their ordination was not explicitly recognized. That itself is also very interesting because it demonstrates not just that we acknowledge the validity of their sacramental orders in another tradition, which is not done, but in fact, they are admitted as people coming into full communion in the church, like we would with RCIA, and then are ordained already as oftentimes married men who very often are also fathers of children. So we have this practice, and I think what Archbishop Shakluna is pointing out is like there's hypocrisy here, there's contradiction, it doesn't make sense. And anyone who's aware of this, and I find this over the years with students who just are not aware of this, it's startling. It doesn't, it seems incongruent. What do you two think about this? Oh, <laughs> you know what? It's interesting to me because I was surprised by how popular the articles were. We also had an editorial that called, yeah, which I don't write the editorials anymore at NCR, but I agree with this one, that called for movement on the issue of mandatory celibacy and highlighted what Shakluna was saying, which is that it's not about just solving the problem of we need more priests. It's about like the hypocrisy of so many clergy who are not able to really keep that promise and are romantically involved with people and, and leading double lives. But I don't know. It just seems to me like those changes are such no-brainers. Like you pointed out, Dan, it's a discipline. It wasn't even true at the beginning for centuries. It reminds me of the women readmitting the women to the diaconate. It's like we have women deacons in scripture, and yet we can't seem to even move on these things, never mind what I think are some of the bigger issues about women's ordination to the priesthood, for example. And the fact that we're still like making this huge fuss about it, and as you you note, theologians have been saying this for, and regular Catholics, for decades, and we have the document from the Synod on the Amazon calling for married some married men to be ordained. I don't know. Maybe I'm just in a winter funk or something that I'm just like, enough already. Why is this taking so long? David, how about you? Well, I really like where you landed there, the enough already, why is this taking so long? It reminds me again of that commentary by Paul Ely about the Synod on Synodality. Like you you ended this multi-year process with nothing actually of substance being said, and you deferred and said, we will continue to talk, but we will not tell you what has been said at the meeting, and we will we'll defer this again to October 2024. I think people are rightfully impatient. And Heidi, your voicing of that impatience, I think, is spot on. And I want to take that and meld it with what Dan was saying a moment ago about the representation of these three women, who they were and what they represented at that table. They didn't represent the majority of Catholic life, particularly Catholic lay life. And there is an allergy 
in the church to actually listening to people's lived experience. There is a kind of bourgeois filter or a kind of acceptability filter that gets used. And if you are a a person who is a Catholic and has been raised Catholic, but you don't look the right way or you don't have the right demographic markers, someone along the way is going to say, but you're not a real Catholic, and so we shouldn't be listening to you. And I think of Phyllis Zagano basically saying this is a question of, are women human? Should they be welcomed in the full humanity of the image of God? And if we can't allow them to participate in certain parts of the church, we're simply saying, not out loud, but by our actions, again, by their fruits, you will know them, that we don't actually think that women are fully human, or we don't actually think that trans people are fully human, or we don't actually think that LGBTQI people are fully human. And so I I just want to echo your impatience. I think that I share it, even though I, I possess demographics that allow me to move more easily in the church than all the other groups that I've just named, but I want to be in solidarity with their frustration and their impatience. So, yeah, great points on both fronts. I think I want to go back to Heidi. You named something really important, David. You picked up on this too, which is like the no-brainer kind of phenomenon here, which is like, which elicits a question, right? Which is, so why not? Why hasn't there been changes in this direction, concrete action, apart from these sort of case-by-case bases in the Lutheran Federation and the Anglican Communion and so forth? And I think there are a couple different answers. Um, Unlike the reinstatement of women to the diaconate, which goes back much further back in terms of its kind of ceasing to be a normative practice than mandatory clerical celibacy in the West— One of the things that I think has happened in the last millennium, and certainly in kind of the modern era, is something that has been brought to surface but hasn't been discussed that much outside of certain kind of internal circles, like the inside baseball of Catholic clergy and Catholic life and structure. And I'm thinking of the late priest and theologian and scholar Donald Cousins and his work over the years, books like The Changing Face of the Priesthood and Sacred Silence and these other things where he studied and drew from surveys of clergy about issues that relate to sexuality, that relate to identity, that relate to their experiences and so forth. And he's not the only one, but I'm thinking of him in particular because he was so committed to this and so well-respected that the proportion of clergy, male clergy in the Catholic Church, who are not simply straight (laughs) is far higher than the average population of, let's say, gay or otherwise queer men in in the general population. That's neither here nor there. That's just a fact, except when, because of the insistence or the imposition of mandatory clerical celibacy, you create something that I've just been thinking about, like, how do we describe this as maybe something like a power closet? It's a closet where people are, they stay in the closet because they don't have to, as a, as a priest, you're not publicly identified with a sexual orientation or a romantic relationship you're not supposed to be, and so you don't talk about this, and so it doesn't matter whether you're straight or bi or gay or what have you, you're in this closet, this imposed closet by the system itself. And it's a closet that comes with certain implied and actual power, right? And so you see this kind of dynamic at play. And I'm not suggesting a conspiracy theory or anything like you you may have read or heard about from some people, particularly on the right, who are obsessed with this sort of like cabal and Roman Vatican like gay squad or something like this. There's nothing quite like that. But just the simple demographics and kind of data show that the church would have to deal with the fact that if diocesan priests 
had the ability to marry and this became a normative thing, what do you do with all the gay priests who might also want to be in a relationship or may not? And then there would be perhaps this fear of an assumption that if you're not a straight married priest in the Roman tradition, then maybe you're assumed to be gay or what have you. You, you, So you can see the kind of tangle that's created here by the imposition of this universally, as opposed to a recognition of a charism that some people have received as a gift from God, right? So that's something that Archbishop Shakluna acknowledges, that like some people are called to celibacy, and, and there's no reason to demean that or to dismiss that or mitigate that. But there's no evidence to suggest that such a vast number of people are. And maybe, actually, the preaching might improve, the pastoral ministry might improve if our Catholic priests knew what family life was like for many people in their own congregations and ministries. Dan, you've just added to, there's so many layers to all of this. There's the clericalism, there's the all of our teachings on sexuality. In some ways, that could make me even more frustrated and <laughs> depressed about it. But on the other hand, I've been, while you guys have been talking, I've been trying to think, I do think this is probably how change happens, though, is that you have people talking about it, the laity as a whole express openness to something. You have expression of church leaders, someone as high up as Shakluna saying it publicly, first in an, in another article and then in a podcast for us at NCR. This is how change happens. So it's good. A woman bishop from a Protestant denomination probably wouldn't have been invited to a discussion about women in the Catholic Church in the past, but now we're having that. So I will celebrate those small victories because I do think that they, they are how real change happens. I want to add to that and bring in the dimension of synodality. And so if you are inviting people to these discussions, and this gets tied into what we were saying earlier about transparency. So a lot of times we have been instructed that those of us who are on the more progressive or lefty end of the church shouldn't enter the synodal process with concrete expectations in mind, but rather we should be open to the Spirit. But that goes for our conservative brothers and sisters and non-binary siblings as well, because they, if they enter into something like a, a moment where they're listening to the voices of those that have been disenfranchised historically by the Church, and they say, well, this is lovely, but at the end of the day, nothing is going to change, they also are not listening to the Spirit. And so there is a kind of anarchic moment that I hope erupts here, where there is a possibility for a different path than the same old, same old, a different outcome than the predicted outcome that is a sort of conservative Catholic outcome, that there is the chance for a radical upheaval. I don't know what that looks like, and I'm trying to not impose my concrete desires on it, while at the same time, I think the Spirit concretely wants people to be free and included. And what that looks like may not be able to be predicted, but that particular truism that the Spirit, the wild goose, is active among us for the liberation of people who have been enchained, that that kind of Isaiah scroll thing where I've come to set the captives free, I think that's an animating moment for the synodal process. I think it's an animating moment for a Eucharistic revival. I think it's an animating moment for what we're doing in the 21st century as the Church. 
And I think it scares a lot of people who are used to having casual access to comfortable violence. I think that people are used to saying, you deserve to be in a cage, and I'm, I've got the means to put you there, and we're upending that to some extent. And that makes some people very nervous. Yeah, which is interesting because when we think about, again, the prophetic tradition, it's, it is the people who, may, who benefit from or are comfortable in the status quo that are most offended by the good news that Jesus proclaimed, as you said, David, that comes from Isaiah, right? At least in the Lucan context. And I think, Heidi, you're right. I think this is to build on David's point about the fear of change, the fear of uncertainty, the fear of the ambiguity that is a, a fact of life. I think that's when you see this kind of pushback when people raise these questions. And I have to contrast this with the papal leadership of John Paul II. There are a lot of good things that he did. There's no doubt about that. People are sometimes shocked. I mean, Heidi, you and I had a conversation about a medieval theologian the other day, and I made this observation that some people would be shocked to know that I'm actually a fan and this kind of thing. But the truth is, one of the negative things that I think John Paul II was inclined to do was just stop conversations on anything that he found discomforting. So whether that's like a robust theological engagement around the role of gender in the ministerial priesthood in this having to do with can women be admitted? And again, that's it's distinct, though related to this question about the women in the diaconate. The, instead of like actually presenting a substantive, scripturally normative, grounded argument, there have been these kind of superficial responses and then a shutting down of the conversation in the early 90s. And again, going back to our conversation about the Super Bowl ads and the kind of cynicism of current generations, I don't even think it's cynicism. I think it's actually a genuine desire for authenticity in a absolute repugnance toward hypocrisy, which is as Christian as you can imagine. That was Jesus's style. And I think they just are not swayed by these arguments because there's a sense in which they are shallow and there's a sense in which they are an appeal to authority, which is, as we know from the philosophers of ancient times through today, is one of the weakest of arguments. Why? Because I said so. Stop talking about it. Don't ask about it. Right? I can picture John Paul II saying, I'm going to pull this car over if you ask about this one more time. And I don't know how these things change, but I think one way that the synodality process, David, that you keep invoking, which is exactly right, is the way that the church, the church's doctrine and its disciplines and its practices do evolve, right? I'm fond of talking to my students about the clarification around the divinity of the Holy Spirit, which took five centuries, right? This was not something, there were hundreds of generations, or at least dozens of generations over the course of those centuries of Christians for whom that was not exactly clear. And it doesn't make it any less true than as now. It just means that it, sometimes it takes time, but the only way you get to that clarity is to have the freedom to listen to the Spirit, as you say, in conversation, in communion with one another. And so anytime somebody just says, we can't talk about this, appeal to authority and shut it down, I think that is a form of what I call often Holy Spirit atheism. It's a willful ignorance, and I don't think there's any place for that in, in authentic Christian life. Well, listeners, as you are on the journey with us of conversation towards the goals of the Spirit, we are so glad that you have chosen to take this time to listen to us hashing this out. If you like what you're hearing, please get involved in the conversations. Send us your thoughts over email or send us your thoughts through social media. But also, if you like what you're hearing, please tell a friend, because we'd love for this conversation to grow. We're going to leave this here right now, and we'll be back in our next segment with Heidi's interview with Joyce Rupp. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Thank you so much for being with us.
Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf with today's guest, Sister Joyce Rupp, a best-selling author, popular retreat leader, and all-around spiritual guru. Listeners, you are in for a treat today, and I'm not going to hide my enthusiasm about our guest, as I'm a longtime fan of Joyce's writings and her wisdom. Joyce grew up on a farm in Iowa and has been inspired by nature throughout her life. She is a sister of the Servants of Mary and has been a member of that religious community for almost 60 years. Joyce has advanced degrees in religious education, spirituality, and psychology, and additional training in Jungian psychology. She is the author of more than 30 books of prayers and spiritual reflection, many of which have been recognized by the Catholic Press Association. Her best-selling book is Praying Our Goodbyes, and I highly recommend this one for anyone going through grief or transition. It was really instrumental at several points in my life. Her most recent book is Jesus, Guide of My Life, and it's the last in a trilogy of Lenten Reflections published by Ave Maria Press. Joyce also founded and serves as a consultant now to the Boundless Compassion Program, which offers transformative retreats and other programs. Her own work as a retreat facilitator has taken her all over the world, and we here at The Francis Effect are delighted that she's taking the time to talk with us about Lent, especially as so many of our listeners are entering into that holy season. So welcome to the podcast, Joyce. Thank you, Heidi. Gosh, that introduction is so great. Would you read that to me every morning? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, I'll send you a copy so you can. (laughs) I I love it. I love it that we can have this conversation because I I can say in turn I've been very fond of you and I am very fond of you and you are very skilled in your own writing abilities. So I'm happy to be here. So well, thank you. We do go pretty far back. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Now we're recording this on Monday. But by the time it drops later this week on Thursday, it'll be the day after Ash Wednesday. So we will have have officially begun the church season of Lent. So I wanted to ask you, how has your view of Lent changed throughout your life? And how do you think people can approach this season with fresh eyes year after year? You know, that's such a good question. And I used to hate Lent, to be honest with you. (laughs) I detested it. I thought, okay, I just got to get through these six weeks and then Easter will come and I can forget about that until next year and just the old grind of repent. And then I don't know how long ago, it's been years, but I read this quote of Robert Fulgham and he said, what about on Ash Wednesday? What instead of saying repent when you receive the ashes, what instead of the person who distributes those said, miracle thou art and to mystery returnest. And I just love that. And I thought what that does is that it calls me to my goodness and it calls me to not think of myself as this terribly bad person that has to beat myself up for six weeks, but it's a whole different question of my existence. My existence is so amazing. And how can I be faithful to that existence by, Merton would say, by being my true self or my genuine self? And so that has just changed everything for me. So this year, I'm really looking forward to the six weeks. And I'll tell you what happened to me. Saturday, this past Saturday, there was a retreat day, a silent retreat day sponsored by Contemplative Outreach in Iowa. And I decided to register for that a couple of weeks ago. And then it got 
to be Friday night. And I thought, why did I register for that? And I can do this at home and I, I could go for a walk. And I just think it all these reasons why I shouldn't go in then. <laughs> I said, Joyce, every time you're so resistive to something like that, you need to do it because there's some going to be something there for you. And so I did go. And it was just the thing that I needed. You know, it was, we had these 30 minutes of quiet centering prayer time with each other throughout the time I was there. And that was praying with other people or meditating with them. There's such an energy that's there that's different when I'm alone. And I always forget that. So that was a piece of it. But what really happened, because I got so quiet in that, those times of meditation, that in the spaces in between, I I started pondering, okay, so what's going on in my life? What do I want to, quote, do for Lent? What would be helpful to restore, or renew, or revitalize? And I had these flashes of insight that came to me because I have always walked fast. I just walk. I have energy. I walk fast. And I almost ran into a woman who was even older than I was at the supermarket the other day with my cart because I was racing around the aisles. And I was thinking about myself on the freeway. I'm always saying to people, hurry up, or get out of the way, you know. And it, it came to me that I'm objectifying people. And that is part of the problem with our ourself, with our globe, our global existence, I think. But for myself, and I thought, I need to slow down this Lent. And so that's really the focus that came to me is that I want to go slower inside of myself and outside of myself. I'm going to eat slower. I'm going to drive slower. I'm going to push my cart around the store slower. And how I'm just going to fast from hurrying. And I've never heard that exactly from the altar when people have spoken about Lent. But that's a fresh way for me to approach it. And I think for other people, if they can slow down enough to really ponder, what is it in my life that will help me to be more peaceful and more lovingly connected to other people? So so that's a long response to that. But that's how it happens for me now for Lent. It's very different than, yeah, in the past. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your book, because in your book, the one that just came out and people still have a chance to get it in time for Lent, you're really focusing on the Jesus of the Gospels, who you're saying has been the main guide in your life. So how has Jesus been, or how do you anticipate that Jesus will be a guide for you as you approach Lent this year and you're slowing down and not objectifying people? Yeah, yeah. I never anticipated writing books on Lent. You know, I just, each day just has a couple paragraphs, short ones, and a little, what do you want to do today kind of thing. But for myself, I, I started thinking about that a few years ago, and I thought, I need to get in touch again with this person, Jesus, because what I hear from the altar mostly in homilies are about rules and regulations and doctrinal kinds of things. And the person of Jesus, which is the heart of Christianity, to get to know him personally so I can be inspired by this good person, not this miracle maker, but this good person. And so my first book, I just did, I did Friend of My Soul because I wanted, I just looked at all the qualities that Jesus had. I was so taken with what a good person he is and was and how it's so easy to get captured in the miracle worker part of Jesus and not in this human being who is such a fine person. 
And then as I looked at all those qualities, then I realized that but the next year I looked at a companion to my suffering because the main quality I saw in him was compassion. And so, so let me go back. So that first year and the qualities then, what I did out of that what came to me for the following year is that I thought, you know what? He was good to so many people that he could easily have dismissed, whether it was a tax collector or Zacchaeus the cheat or the woman caught in adultery. But he was hospitable to them. So I, my Latin practice that year was I made an effort to be in groups and in situations with people I didn't like. And people whose personality turned me off or people whose beliefs were very different from mine. And to keep my mouth shut and just really be present, try to be present in a kind way. And that next year, after looking at the quality of compassion, I decided I would do an act of kindness every day during Lent, all kinds of acts of kindness, very deliberately. And that was just such a good Lent. I I just felt so inspired by doing that. And now this year, with the guide of my life, I'm looking at Jesus and thinking he did not just hurry his life along. I have never thought about that before, but he took time with people. He looked at, he didn't see them as objects, he saw them as people, so... So that's really, that's going to be my approach this year. So that's really how I, I, how would I say, how I take on Jesus as a guide in my life to inspire me through Lent. Yeah. So, Well, I was thinking about how, I like the way you say you wanted to re-get in touch with the Jesus of the Gospels, given what you were hearing in official church structures, more about doctrine. So I think that evangelical Protestants tend to do a really good job of talking about their relationship with Jesus. And sometimes it's very individualistic, right? So me and Jesus. So I like that Catholicism doesn't overdo that. But what can Catholics learn from that focus on a relationship with Jesus? So how can a church, especially one that's torn by polarization about so many things, maybe come together about putting Jesus more center stage in our lives. Do you think that could be something that could bring us together? Um, Definitely. I think you know that I'm very ecumenical and interfaith oriented, and I've learned a lot from other traditions. One of the things that I think is so different from Protestants and Catholics is that Protestants know their Bible, and they have a Bible, and they read their Bible. Catholics go to a study group and they have somebody tell them about the Bible. They tell them what's in the Bible. But they do they they might not even have a Bible themselves. And do they read it? Probably not. Maybe they'll read the scriptures for the day. But to really to read through a whole gospel, like now we're in Mark liturgically. And Mark is so good because the other day I was thinking, I'd love to write a book just on the phrases, the details that Mark has. I love it. He had them all sit down. He got into the boat. Anyway, he he just, all the detailed stuff, he doesn't just do the glossy, the over-the-top thing. But to get Catholics to read the Bible, to sit with those stories, I think that would be phenomenal. I really do. And I see that as one of the big differences. And I, what I see in Catholicism, see, I love the theology part of the body of Christ because it's not just a Jesus and me theology or spirituality. It to me, as a Roman Catholic, it draws me to the bigger picture, just like I hope my Lenten practice for slowing down. Just this morning, I looked out the window of my office and I saw, I saw a man going into the apartment building next door. 
And I thought to myself about my practice and I thought, instead of just seeing, oh, there's that person going in there, I want to connect. So I just immediately, I don't know how to explain this, but I just sent something from myself to him and I thought, have a blessed day today. It was just like, I care about that person enough to want him to have a good day instead of, oh, he's gone in the building. There he goes. That's it. So I don't know if that makes sense or not, but it's like, it's, it takes me beyond myself out to group of people. Yeah. Just a small little practice that can change your focus on things. I know for some, you talked about how for Lent used to mean to you this sort of negative time and did you want to give something up? And I know it's become a trend to say, well, I'm not going to give something up. I'm going to do something. You know, I think giving up busyness or rushing around is turns the giving up something on its head. But in terms of practices, you talked a little bit about like just pausing and thinking of other people like the man going into your apartment building. But what are some other practices that nourish you or that you think might help people in these times or during Lent? Yeah. Well, I think that instead of just thinking about generally the three aspects the church gives of fasting, almsgiving, and what's the other one? Fasting? Prayer. 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 Yeah. Of course. Prayer. <laughs> yeah, prayer. I, if, see, I go back to that. If we can, and it could be done for people who come to liturgical, to Mass or the Eucharistic liturgy, instead of giving a homily to say, let's sit here for five minutes and I'd ask you to think about what in your personal life or your work life or your family life or your friendships, whatever, are there pieces in there that you would like to have changed in some way so you'd feel better about them, so they'd be more peaceful, so there'd be more kindness or more love in them? Or is there a way that you treat yourself that isn't isn't very kind? And but to get have it come back to it's not something that someone else is telling me to do. And that's what I was talking about last Saturday is that I had to get inside of myself. I had to process my life a little bit to look at it. And so and to encourage people that there's so many kinds of fasting. I know that in world religions, physical fasting is seen as something very positive. It can be, and it is. But that there's so many kinds of fasting. Can we encourage people to fast from something that needs changing? And I think the same thing for almsgiving. What part of my life would I like to share? Would I like to give? Could I give more patience to my children Could I, or my spouse? Could I give more compassion to my friend that's always whining about something that gets on my nerves? They're really basic, simple kinds of things. And I think just taking one specific thing, I've learned that for myself. I used to have a list of five things. I'm going to do for Latin and I do all that poorly. But to just have one goal or one focus. And then I think the prayer part of it is, and this is very American, is that when I set a goal for myself, oh, I'm going to do it and I'm getting it done and I want to, you know. And I think the prayer part of it is, I fear you've led me to this, Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to keep turning this over to you. So I'm going to need your strength and your energy. And every day, would you please remind me, you know, and, and so together, together I can make this change. I need, quote, grace, you know, that loving movement of God in my life. Well, I think a lot of people are feeling the need to slow down 
and to spend some time inward, given everything that's going on in our country, in our world, even in our church. I know I follow you on Facebook, and a lot of the reflections you share there, you're out in nature. So I know you have always been connected to nature, and you get out for regular time in nature. I'm thinking about the major concern of, of is our world and our nature even going to survive given global warming and climate catastrophe? And I'm just wondering for you, how is nature connected to your spiritual life? And what, if anything, does that have to say to the issue of the environmental crisis? Yeah, well, big question. <laughs> you know, this will seem ironic, paradoxical or something, but even though my Lenten practice is going to be the slow down inside and outside. I really am a very contemplative person. I love quiet. I love reflection. And I, when I grew up on the farm, you can't hardly help but be contemplative. Is so much time you spent alone, whether you're out gardening or was out in the fields helping my dad, was gathering grain, whatever it was. But, but I learned to be at home with myself when I, when I was on the farm. And so I have a great love of nature. Nature teaches me, the four seasons teach me in so many ways. And so it pains me greatly with what's happening in our environment. I think I have as much sorrow about that as I do about anything. And I was so grateful for Pope Francis's Laudate Si. And he pointed out just a lot of things that are happening that are harming our beloved planet. The part of his encyclical letter that I appreciated the most is that he showed how what's happening is affecting the larger picture. You know, for example, with the climate change, how it's eroding the land and how more water is taking over. And for people that, people that have a hard time financially, they just make it from really day-to-day, week-to-week with their fishing industries or small family industries or people who live in developing countries that are so affected by a lack of water, all of that. So again, it brings, that letter brings us into the bigger picture. And the more I think about it, I think it's two things. One hand is that we have to do more individually. Like I, I keep saying, if in the United States, if we had one day, one day every month that was no plastics day, just no plastic bags day, think of the millions of plastic bags that would not be used into a supermarket. No, thank you. No plastic bag today. No. Wow. It would make such a difference. So that in all the other areas personally that we can do. But then I think the bigger part, on the other hand, is corporations. We will not have a change in our environment unless corporations are called to task, and that means legislation. So we have got to keep pushing. I have to keep pushing and pushing for legislation to happen. And it's not happening fast enough, and it's certainly not happening in the United States fast enough. But I think that's where it really is in the larger organizations making changes. So I, yeah. And so I keep posting photos of nature in different ways and reflections because I think the more people can stay connected to personally to the environment and see how beautiful it is, how wonderful it is, and how, how just how intriguing creatures are, 
that maybe they'll care more. Maybe they'll stay, they'll be more connected. So that's where I am with the, that whole thing today. It's just, uh, it troubles me greatly. Well, when you talked about hope earlier and the need to stay optimistic, I thought, well, where do you get that from? But maybe part of it is from looking at nature. What well, goes back to the farm because I just, I plant a seed and you wait and you see it grow and you get to tend it and then the harvest does come from it. And I just believe that, that it's just, that seasonal thing's just ingrained in me. And you as a mid, middle part of America, yes. you know that too, we have those four distinct seasons and you see it. Right now, we're just getting ready for, at least here in Iowa, spring is just, it's on the breath of the air. You can tell it's going to be coming and the birds are starting to sing again. So yeah, we can have hope. We can have hope. So. Well, it's always so grounding for me to talk to you and to read your books. I really enjoyed these reflections and I'll be praying with them again during my Lenten practice. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about? You know, what I would say to anyone who's listening to us is, please take time for yourself. We live in a rushing, busy world and just sit with yourself sometime and Listen to what's going on in your heart, not just your mind. We can intellectualize a lot, but just be so quiet that you listen to your heart. There's a lot that that you can get to know by listening to your heart. So, Well, that is great. Thank you so much, Joyce Rupp, for joining us on The Francis Effect. We're so grateful for your wisdom and good luck with that next book. We're looking forward to that too. <laughs> thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Thank you. This is David. Just want to say that if you want to listen to the entirety of this interview with Heidi, you can do so at our Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash FrancisFXPod. Thank you for listening. On behalf of Heidi and Father Daniel, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're very glad to have been with you today. Thank you so much. This has been The Francis Effect. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.